Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And today with me, as I say always, is a very interesting guest, Drew Bimmer. Drew has a very interesting background. Drew Bimmer is a strategic management and communications professional with two decades of experience in governmental, public, and civil affairs. He's the current administrator of the Site Evaluation Committee, uh, Agency Director for Energy Facility Siting, Permitting Investigation Enforcement of Compliance in the U.S. State of New Hampshire. Areas of oversight include utility scale generation, transmission, storage, resource extraction and refinement. His political experience includes campaign management and legislative staffing at the local, state and federal level, including members of Congress, governors and presidential candidates. It's going to be some interesting stuff to talk about. He's also a frequent panelist and moderator at energy conferences in the U.S. and Africa. Topics of expertise include resilience, energy security, stakeholder engagement, land use politics and local content. Additional experience includes executive protection, public safety, information operations, geopolitical risk analysis and crisis management. Drew, thank you for coming. What have you not done in your life? I've held a lot of jobs, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on. I know it's it's been a bit interesting getting this set up. We've, we've tried a couple of times, but can you go into a little bit about yourself in your own words? Sure. When I was in college, I really never knew what I wanted to do with my life. I was taking a class called Introduction to Virginia Politics, and we took a field trip to the state capitol, and I was so impressed that I told my professor I wanted to work there. I didn't know doing what. I just wanted to work there. So she told me the following week we were going to have a special guest in class. That gentleman was the legislative aide to a state senator, and I asked him how he got his start. He told me he decided what he wanted to do, and he just walked in the door and applied for a job. So a couple days after that, I did the same thing. I got an internship making coffee and putting up yard signs for a political candidate, and that kind of took off. The first 10 or so years of my career was in progressively higher levels of political campaign management in the United States. Then right after I turned 30, I went into public affairs, predominantly on energy projects. That was in the U.S. state of New Hampshire. At the time, it was a large-scale hydroelectric project that we were trying to get permitted that would have brought energy from Canada into the U.S. I soon realized that a lot of the strategies and tactics employed historically to build infrastructure projects were outdated. And what I mean by that is people looked at them purely as an exercise in government relations and in public relations, and it was really an exercise in information operations and civil affairs. You need a more holistic approach. I look at a grassroots information operation as an upfront investment in resilience meaning that once you get the local support on your side, not only is it easier to build a project, but it's easier to maintain a project from a local content perspective. Interesting. So what I'm very interested because this is something we've talked about is the concept of how these big projects, mainly in energy, Green New Deal, how they, in your opinion, are largely information operations. And first of all, is there anything wrong with it? And is that a good thing? 
Well, one of the double-edged swords we have in the United States is we take a lot of personal freedoms to what the rest of the world might consider extreme levels. One of those is the freedom of speech. Anyone can start a nonprofit organization in the United States, take money from anyone they want, and then say anything they want, and it's all covered under free speech. So where the rubber hits the road on energy projects is you propose a project and almost immediately there will be a grassroots insurgency that will crop up. And a lot of people look at it as a localized issue. They'll say, well, you know, we'll mitigate the effects of this grassroots insurgency by addressing it with facts and logic, and we'll, we'll tell the benefits of the project, and that'll win people over to our side. That works almost as well as Americans going into places like Vietnam and thinking they're going to win people over by talking about democracy and freedom. You're fighting an emotional battle with logic and reason. And what you need to appreciate is, is that nine times out of 10, that grassroots insurgency is a dark money campaign funded by whoever your, your opponent is. So it's typically going to be someone else in the energy industry. It's going to be who you would call like a near peer industry incumbent. A logical example to make is oftentimes another type of energy generation is competing for a percentage of the portfolio. So you could propose a nuclear project and the competitor that funds your opposition could be natural gas or something similar. It could be large-scale hydro because they look at you as a threat. And what they'll do is they'll make a cost analysis where they'll say, you know, if your project comes online, it'll cost us millions of dollars a month or millions of dollars a year. So sometimes they want to kill you. But other times, they just want to bog you down forever. I was involved in a project that probably should have taken two or three years to get permitted. It took 10 or 12 years. And then at the end of the day, it didn't get permitted. So the competitors in that scenario were successful in tying down a competitor in a very high burn rate operation that ultimately ended in their failure. So... One of the things also in the United States that makes it very difficult to cite infrastructure is public affairs component is one part, but the other component is that in a country that values individual property rights to the extent that we do, it's very hard to acquire the land necessary to build any of these projects, particularly linear land projects. So a transmission line is a lot harder because you need to connect point A with point B. So literally one single landowner holding out can torpedo an entire project. So one of the things that your competitors will do is they'll bring force concentration on a choke point. That choke point could be a town, it could be a single property owner, and they will convince that person through you know either persuasion or coercion to hold out. And if that person holds out, they block the entire project. Utility companies in the United States are not owned by the government. We have less central planning than a lot of European countries. They can't just draw a line on a map and then build a project. So one of the things that I will mention to my friends over in Africa, that is the silver lining of the energy poverty cloud, if you will, is when you're starting from zero or you're starting from a lower, lower place, you have an opportunity to actually make a coherent plan. And in the United States, there's never been a coherent plan because we have 50 states with 
50 different energy strategies, and they've kind of been cobbled together over time, and it presents a lot of liabilities. So the information operation side, I'm not just talking about getting a project approved, getting public support, getting it cited. I'm also talking about foreign influence, be it either cyber warfare or disinformation campaigns, can really play games with energy security in the United States. And it's, uh, it's troubling, to say the least. That's something I'm very interested in. So let's unpack that for a second. I know that nation state actors are using cyber as a tool to either probe or actually attack energy infrastructure in the U.S. From a perspective of energy security or competition, what is the motive and how does that look? The motive, if you're looking at U.S. and Western adversaries, is they are trying to get the United States to pull out of the international fossil fuel game. So United States energy security is one issue. We, by and large, have enough power to power our own country. It's typically a question of cost. We'll have the debate if renewable energy is worth added costs, if it's reliable. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to shift the debate. And a lot of the debate surrounding climate change is, it's definitely warranted because if you're a wealthier country like the United States, you definitely should look at investing in new technologies. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to get the United States out of the oil and gas export game. So a lot of the climate change narrative that you see in the United States is the product of a disinformation campaign by people like Russia and China. And the end goal here is to get the rest of the world dependent on them for their energy supply. So what they want to see happen is they want to see a country like South Africa, who's experiencing extreme load shedding right now, come to the United States and say, we need investment, we need foreign aid, we need to help build out our energy infrastructure. And then the United States will go to them and say, we'll only help you if you're willing to build renewable energy. So they, in turn, will go to the country that is willing to help them the most. And places like Russia are very eager to fill the void. You've seen the same thing in Europe. I saw this coming from pretty far away, that if Western Europe was going to be dependent on Russian natural gas for power generation, then you had Russia holding a pretty pretty strong geopolitical tool and weapon over your head. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to get a little bit of the same dynamic out of the United States, because if the United States stops importing natural gas to other countries, somebody's going to fill that void. So you have, to circle back on your question, you have people certainly launching cyber attacks at the United States. Cyber attacks are not my area of expertise. I am more in the disinformation side of information warfare. They are trying to shape the debate because what they want to do is they want the United States to basically cede hegemony in the developing world. That's a strong point. You mentioned South Africa. We had interesting conversations about that because South African government was, I believe, by the U.S. ambassador accused of supporting Russia with weapons or weapons supplies in their fight against Ukraine. You touched on a point where the Russians were more willing to deal with, with South Africa on their terms. Can you, first of all, explain, I think some people that are listening to this podcast, they would not know what load shedding is. 
if you lived anywhere in the global south, you will know what it is. But can you first explain what, what load shedding means? And then secondly, go into South Africa as a case study of how we got where we are today. Sure. Load shedding in simplest terms is not having enough power for your people. So in South Africa, it manifests itself in rolling blackouts that are basically on a published schedule. I was in South Africa a couple of years ago for an energy conference. And the first day of the energy conference, the lights went out in the hotel. And uh, this was in a nice hotel in a very touristy part of Cape Town. The reason they got there is South Africa was predominantly using coal for energy. They can produce most of their own coal, and then they would burn it locally for power generation. The United States and the West, through things like ESG penalties and withholding foreign aid, pushed South Africa into closing a lot of their coal plants. When that happened, they didn't really have a plan for how they were going to replace that power. The United States, of course, went in there and said, if you replace it with windmills and solar panels, we'll help you out. To put this in perspective, and I'll use this example quite frequently, a medium-sized coal power plant generates about 500 megawatts of power. In order to replicate that with renewables, you would need between four and 500 wind turbines, or you'd need about 3,500 acres of solar panels. So as far as the footprint goes, you need a lot more geographical space to site renewables. They're also intermittent power, meaning they're not on all the time. So load shedding is the inability to produce enough power to meet your need. What ended up happening with South Africa was, you know, when they got the cold shoulder from the United States, they went to the country that was actually going to help them address their concerns and needs. And I would say that, by and large, the United States is very poor at addressing other nations' concerns and needs. Because we'll go in there and we'll impose our own sort of set of beliefs and sensibilities on them. Africa as a continent is about 3% of the global carbon footprint. They have about 600 million people without power. So that's two United States of people with the equivalent of a light bulb and a car battery. The United States, on the other hand, is about 10% of the global foot, uh, carbon footprint. So, you know, one of the things that I would talk about with people over there is I said, if you're the United States and you want to pursue clean energy, but you also want to bring some of these developing countries out of energy poverty, the pathway forward is focusing on new technologies to reduce carbon footprint in the United States while giving a little slack and leeway to these countries in places like Africa who have abundant natural resources, you know, and for the first time in modern history, really have the opportunity to harness those resources for the benefit of their own people, you know, not for export, not for, you know, colonialism, but for local use. And the other thing with harnessing your own resources with things like natural gas is you also get to employ your own labor to do it. They create jobs, you control the entire supply chain. And then at the end of the day, you have electricity and pretty much all other poverty stems from energy poverty. Because if you don't have power, you don't have lights in medical clinics, you're not going to be able to cite industry there. And, you know, the United States appears to be fine with maintaining that sort of status quo. And places like Russia go in there and they, they offer aid. 
they offer investment, they offer expertise. And, you know, one of the ways that you can stretch life out of some of these coal plants, you know, is the United States says close them down entirely. The most logical thing to use them as a bridge fuel is to retrofit them to burn natural gas. And I don't think anybody over there that I've talked to has the illusion that they're going to be burning oil, coal, and gas forever, but they need a bridge to renewable energy. And, you know, it's a shame that we won't play ball because we push them into the arms of countries like Russia, and it's a completely unforced error. Well, what I find interesting, right, we're talking about, I saw earlier this year, the new policy, a new Africa, U.S. Africa policy. And I think now there's like $600 billion allocated. I don't know how that's going to, where that's going to come from, but to help infrastructure projects in Africa. And something very interesting, because we with Green Dynamics, we focus a lot on Africa and I speak to people in leadership positions and what they say is we want to engage with the U.S., but we cannot fulfill certain requirements, number one. Secondly, we don't want to cede control of these projects. We understand that the U.S. wants companies, U.S. companies or other companies involved in it, but we want to hold you know, the reins of this project, number one. And secondly, we do not want to change our values or our beliefs, as you mentioned. Something I'm hearing a lot, because I'm, I'm not that familiar with U.S. politics, but if you're in security or in geopolitics, you have to be somewhat familiar with U.S. policy because it dictates a lot what happens in the world. But can you go into a bit more on what ESG is and how that's impacting businesses in the U.S. as well as U.S. policy abroad? I think ESG originally came from a pretty good place. You wanted companies to be good stewards of the community and the environment. If you're an energy company, you wanted to offer, you know, what I I would call free market incentives to self-police, adhere to stricter environmental standards, be a good community partner. I think there's been a lot of mission creep from ESG. A lot of companies now, a lot of investment firms are basing the choices of companies they put in their portfolios on a lot of these ESG factors instead of them actually making money. And, you know, as it comes to places like Africa, as it comes to places like Asia, the rest of the world, we need to appreciate the fact that a lot of these countries don't share our values on social issues. They have different cultural norms than we do. And then it is unrealistic in a lot of places to impose the type of environmental regulations that we impose on countries in the United States. So what ends up happening is you have either the government or you have investment firms and investors imposing penalties on companies that do business in Africa. So they wouldn't necessarily impose a penalty on a country in Africa, but they would say to a company in the United States, if you want to do business in Africa and you want to build certain types of infrastructure, there are going to be penalties. And one of those penalties is going to come from doing fossil fuel work at all. You know, if you're a company that looks at a place like South Africa and says the most logical solution to load shedding is helping them build out their oil and natural gas infrastructure, there's going to be some type of penalty in the United States. And that's a problem because, well, it's a problem for a lot of reasons, but it's a problem because the business community in Africa that I dealt with anyway 
does not particularly like foreign aid. They do not like foreign aid because foreign aid usually gets appropriated by government. It gets spent poorly. Sometimes it just gets stolen completely. Direct foreign investment, that's the key. If you can get companies and investors in the United States to buy into projects as partners in Africa, then you forge the type of relationships that really build lasting bonds. So that is a huge roadblock to being able to help. You look at the Chinese, for instance, they will either build the infrastructure themselves and import all their own labor to do it, or what they'll do is they'll give you a predatory loan that they know you'll never be able to pay back, and then they'll repossess the infrastructure. So, you know, they don't like either of those options. What they like is they like, as far as I, as far as I can tell, I don't like to just take broad strokes here, but you know, the folks that I've been dealing with closely in sub-Saharan Africa are looking for direct foreign investment, and they're not getting it from the United States because companies are afraid to go over there and do business. Yeah, no, I agree with you. That's the general feeling I'm getting. And, and the apprehension against foreign aid is there too. I think a lot of African leaders have spoken about it and there is really an opportunity. I think the EU is doing a similar type of projects whereby they're securitizing the investments in infrastructure. So it's, I think it's 600 million in, in a form of a bond, 600 million euro or 600 billion fund where companies can engage with projects in, in Sub-Saharan or in Africa in, in general. But I find it interesting that these decisions are, it seems that these decisions are eroding the U.S. standing and security abroad, where the Chinese are, you know, using this as, as a perfect uh, way in. And they are obviously, they are years and years ahead of anything the West is doing, not just the U.S., but, but also the EU and, and others. So. What is the way forward? Like, how do we, how does the U.S., I say we, I'm not, I'm not American, but how does the U.S. and the West at all move forward? And is there a way to move forward with things like ESG, limiting what you can do? Man, that's a good question. There is a way forward. You know, it starts with listening to the concerns of the locals in the countries that we want to do business with. And you could look at this as, you know, an issue of national security because a lot of the things like rare earth minerals are sourced from places in developing economies, particularly in Africa, particularly in places like the Congo. And, you know, one of the things that's going to be a major choke point moving forward is if we want to develop renewable energy infrastructure in the United States, if that's our goal, we need to control that green energy supply chain. And we're not doing that right now. And you know, one of the things that we are going to need to do is we're going to need to reconcile the fact that all of our trading partners are not going to share our same values. And presently, we seem unwilling to do that. And, you know, our near peer adversaries in the world are much better at playing that game than we are. I mean, that's pretty much what it comes down to. Yeah. I think the reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast is because I think this is a very underreported issue and it has so much impact on things like security, not just local security, global security, and how these countries are move, trying to move forward. And I think this moniker of 
you know, this leadership is, the governance is bad because it's corruption. And, and as you said before, you know, corruption enables one side or the other of an issue. And uh, that is either getting the support that they need from a leadership or not. And a good example, you, you were talking about Russia, a good example, and I, and I hope people that, that, that know more about this topic than I do, forgive me for saying this, but from, from our research and from how I look at this, places like Mali and the Sahel, but for now Mali has Wagner, uh, a Russian PMC. And I think most people listening to this podcast, we've talked about Wagner a lot and they, they seem to be popping up everywhere. But the reason why Wagner is there is because Wagner was okay with delivering airframes, heavy weapons that the West wasn't. So when the Mali government said, well, we need attack helicopter or attack gunships and we need aircraft, so we will do the aircraft. You just tell us where we need to strike. And I understand that because if you enable that, the collateral damage can, you know, pile up really quickly as we've seen in Mali, where the death toll has, I think, 10x just in a year because now they're using more heavy weapons and, and Wagner is enabling that. How do you, as the West, and particularly the US, combat these type of things if I think you're forgetting the point, and I'm, not, and I'm not meaning you, I think a lot of people, even people in power, are forgetting the point that they're infantilizing Africans and forgetting that these people have real issues and how you're going to engage with them if you're not going to entrust them with the tools to defend themselves and to build their countries. Absolutely. You know, I, I've, I've used the term and I've heard the term used paternalism. You said infantilize. Um, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. you know, paternalism is probably a similar, similar meaning is a lot of the attitude towards Africa, unfortunately, is that a lot of these countries are incapable of taking care of themselves. And it's a shame because if you want to build partners, especially diplomatic trade partners, you need to treat people with the respect that you would want them to treat you with. And when we go into places like Africa, and you mentioned weapons, you mentioned heavy weapons, I will often say that the biggest weapon in the world right now is energy security. You can hold that over anyone's head. You can make them do things diplomatically. You can use it as an um, instrument to destabilize your adversaries like Russia is attempting to do in Western Europe with natural gas. So, you know, as far as the paternalism goes, Westerners, particularly Western progressives in the United States, and I really encourage folks to look up an organization called the African Energy Chamber. They are really um, taking the bull by the horns on this issue. Their issue is the paternalism of the West and the paternalism of the United States. And, you know, they take pretty strong issue with the fact that, you know, we will go in to places like South Africa and say, you need to embrace our version of saving the planet. And if you don't embrace our version of saving the planet, then we're unwilling to do business with you because we know what's best. Okay. Their point is to say, it's very easy from, you know, the United States to take that opinion, but on the ground, as far as local issues go, you have people without power, you have people without clean water. You have to 
give people the ability to control their own destiny. And one of the things I would like to see from a sort of a pan-African perspective here is whether it's rare earth minerals, certainly, or, or energy, natural gas, is them bonding together and creating almost like an OPEC for Africa. Because one of the things that you see is you see a lot of countries trying to undercut each other on things like environmental regulations. A lot of these places know that if they say to the United States, okay, we're going to try to adhere to the same environmental and labor regulations that you do, a neighbor of theirs is going to say, well, we're not. Okay, so we're going to undercut you on cost. And this is one of those instances where organizations like the African Energy Chamber that held the conference I went to a couple of years ago come into play is they're trying to bring everybody on the same page and work together as one cohesive unit. Because as long as African nations are competing with each other, probably nobody's going to win. So the paternalism's real. It's alarming. Some people have referred to it as neo-colonial, basically meaning that you're not respecting local cultures, you're not respecting local countries, and you're also not enabling them to utilize their own resources for their own benefit. And one of the things that a lot of my friends in um, the oil and gas industry in Africa were very quick to point out is that the same people who shamed them and penalized them into closing down their coal plants and the same people who refused to invest in natural gas infrastructure came crying to Africa to ramp up natural gas exports when the war in Ukraine began. So, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy. And, you know, if you want to do business with people, if you want to trade with people, you need to treat them with respect and you need to treat them as an equal partner. So you mentioned green infrastructure and rare earth minerals. I saw a statement maybe uh, one and a half months ago that there's probably not enough lithium. There's highly likely not enough lithium on earth to meet EV needs, right? So that I thought that was shocking and not enough people are talking about that. Number two, I think I sent something to you earlier about how energy companies in the US and, and elsewhere are telling EV manufacturers, mainly of the ones that, that want to build trucks, that the the power grid cannot even handle the needs of the of of EVs, electric vehicles. So how is this path viable, first of all? And a little maybe cheeky second one question that I wanted to connect to that. What is the apprehension of nuclear power? Oh, man. I mean, as far as nuclear power goes, we've had the answer to the energy security question for, what, 50, 60 years at this point in time? The apprehension is nobody's willing to cite a nuclear power plant near where they live. And if you look at the history of nuclear power, it has not been as alarming as people make it. You had, obviously, a major meltdown in Chernobyl that was due mostly to incompetence. You had one in Japan that was due to an earthquake, okay? And then you had one in the United States at Three Mile Island. That's about it, okay? Nuclear power is extremely safe. It's extremely secure. And nowadays, people are talking about a little bit of distributed, small-scale nuclear power, which sounds like a phenomenal idea. But again, you know, is it easier to cite one or two massive nuclear plants or dozens of small ones? I would say it's probably harder to cite dozens of small ones, to be honest with you. But as far as the EV path goes, there is a way to do it. it. The problem is I don't 
really have any faith in our ability to do it in the United States. Because, you know, you have a couple things. First of all, the rare earth mineral supply chain. And I don't know if there's enough lithium or cobalt to supply that long term. What I do know is we haven't fully figured out what it's going to do to the power grid. There are estimates that it could increase the energy demand by 20%. That would be alarming. That wouldn't only be an alarming figure because I don't think we will be able to cite that much energy, but the transmission and distribution infrastructure also, I don't think, can handle that much load. So you have the issue of can we make enough power, and then you have an issue of can we deliver enough power to people to actually plug in their electric vehicles. It's a good question. Absent any coherent energy strategy, I don't really have a lot of faith in our ability to tackle that problem. The other issue is things like battery disposal. You know, how are we going to dispose of all these batteries? The components are extremely hard to recycle. The rare earth minerals are cited or sourced rather in sometimes near slave conditions, you know, with forced labor. And the other issue is that from a, this is something I deal with locally here because I'm on a public safety board in my city, is the fire department has very, very strong concerns about what happens to these things when there's a fire. Solar panels on your roof make putting out fires very difficult. All of these things, when they burn, they're not easy to put out. You need special chemicals to put out a electric vehicle fire. Mostly, the issue we're going to have to deal with is how this impacts demand and when it impacts demand. And By when, I mean what time of day. If it's a time of day when people aren't using a lot of power anyway, it might not be as big as people think. And what I mean by that is if everybody plugs their car in at night when they get home, it would be better than if everybody plugged their car in in the middle of the day. Because the middle of the day, in the summers anyway, is when it's the hottest, people are running air conditioning. One of the positives of electric vehicles that I think a lot of people are, are considering is the battery technology could get to the point where your car could actually be an energy storage unit for your home. So if you had something like solar panels on your roof and an electric vehicle in your garage, you could be net metering energy into your vehicle battery during the day. And then at night, you could be powering your television off of your, you know, your Tesla battery. So that's pretty cool. But I think we have a lot of concerns. One of the things that I, I brought up to you offline is... You know, what happens in the United States or anywhere if you have electric vehicles and then you lose power for one or two weeks? And that's not totally uncommon up here. I mean, we have winters where you'll get two or three feet of snow at a time. We have ice storms. The longest I've lost power is one week, which um, in the grand scheme of things is not super long. But, you know, if you have an electric vehicle that you can't plug into the grid, how are you getting to the grocery store? How are emergency vehicles? picking people up to take them to the hospital. These are all really good questions. I don't have the answers to most of them, but like I mentioned at the very beginning, the big sort of roadblock to a lot of this stuff is that in a country like the United States, with as much free speech as we have, as much corporate money that influences public policy as we have, and the ability to influence the public through things like disinformation campaigns, advertising campaigns, lobbying money, political campaign money is, are we ever going to have a coherent strategy to tackle these problems? Because a lot of times what they do is they'll arrive at some sort of compromise solution that really doesn't fix anything. 
And then the final thing is, I'll point this out to people all the time. If your power grid is powered by coal, then your electric vehicle is powered by coal. So, you know, how do you address that problem? That's a great point, actually. And making the footprint, energy footprint of making an electric vehicle is, massive. is also not to, you know, so that's, yeah, that's a very interesting point. I think a lot of people rather not talk about it because it's difficult to answer. I wanted to, at this point of the, of the podcast, sometimes I, because it gives us interesting topics and, and outcomes, I wanted to ask you, do you have a question for me? Oh, wow. And, it, and it's fine if you don't. You don't, you don't have to make one up. But... Well, yeah. What major problems, professionally speaking, do you notice keep popping up with your clients? The reason I ask that is, you know, I've worked in energy for a while now, and I've worked in, you know, information campaigns for a while now. And during the pandemic, it really opened up my world because I could attend energy conferences anywhere in the world now from my basement. And you could be anywhere. You could be at a conference in Dubai, Singapore, Hong Kong, Brazil. They were all talking about Africa. They were all talking about African energy poverty. So it was very apparent to me that all roads, as far as energy policy go, were literally pointing towards Africa, towards finding solutions. So is there any issue that you're working on with your clients that seems to keep popping up? no matter where you go? It's a great question. I think there's a, there's a number of them, but I think the one that's cited most and that's something that we do well is generally a lack of understanding of the complexity of different African countries. And, and also, I, I hear often people, even very educated people, see Africa as a monolith or Sub-Saharan Africa as a model. It's like every country is the same. So that's a big problem. Demystifying that, that's, that's one. Another one I can tell you what, they're, what, what keeps popping up and what they're interested in is political risk, right? So how is a government change, a government policy going to impact us doing business there? For example, there is a huge infrastructure project planned and, and, and starting up in Uganda, the pipeline from, from Uganda through Tanzania all the way to the coast, an oil pipeline. That is getting a lot of resistance locally from farmers, concerned citizens, but, and as you said, on, on information operations, that there is, you know, plenty of actors that are interested in, in disrupting that. Imagine you invest in that project directly, indirectly, and then Uganda decides to take a new law banning LGBTQ marriage and, and just expression of, of, of any of that and punishing that severely. If you look through a lens of you know ethical consideration, political risk, and ESG, that's a huge problem because beforehand, if there was like a pollution locally or there was a breach of a pipeline, and this is harsh to say, but a lot of the people in the West don't care about that, right? But these are issues. So Shell's pipelines bursting and, and polluting massive pieces of land in, in Nigeria doesn't really get any play on TV in the West, right? But 
Uganda adopting an anti-LGBTQ bill gets a lot of attention. So how are you going to make a, and this is an example, a case study of how would a client deal with that? Not locally. How would a client deal with that at home? Hey, how are you guys investing in this country or in this project? And they have these barbaric laws as to what you're pointing to earlier in the conversation. So I think these are considerations that are very tough. Like how are you doing business with dictators or autocrats, right? The hypocrisy. So I think these are, yeah. The hypocrisy comes down to money, you know? Yeah. That's what it comes down mm-hmm. to is, you know, people like myself point this out in the United States all the time is you have a sports league, for instance, in the United States that may decide to wade into social issues, LGBTQ issues, social justice issues, uh, which is fine. Okay. And they will impose penalties on domestic companies that do not share their values, but they'll continue to do business in China. They'll continue to do business in places yeah. in the world where, where basketball shoes are manufactured with slave labor, right? Mm-hmm. With countries that steal people's intellectual property. And it all comes down to money. You know, it comes down to the fact how valuable of a customer is China versus how valuable of a customer is Uganda. So what I say is, I don't know where the line is. It's all areas of gray, which is mm-hmm. perfect for this podcast, right? But, you know, the issue is if you want to do business with foreign countries and you believe that doing business with those foreign countries is going to benefit your own people, but also their people, you know, is you have to turn a blind eye to certain social stances and social positions that you don't happen to agree with. Now, I don't know the details of this law that they passed in Uganda. It could be very bad from a humanitarian perspective. If that's the case, you have to make a very hard decision. But if we only did business with countries that shared our own sensibilities, we would be doing business with, I was going to say nobody, but you know, probably Europe still. But we would not be making friends in the developing world at all. And it's interesting to me is that people in the United States talk about multiculturalism and they talk about how great it is to bring people of different cultures into the United States. And I agree with that, by the way. Where I live, we have a very sizable African immigrant and refugee community. A lot of people from Liberia, a lot of folks from South Sudan, what used to be Sudan, but is now South Sudan. And then a lot of folks from Rwanda. And when they come here, they're a great part of the fabric of the United States because they bring different cultures to the game. And that's what makes the U.S. great. But for some reason, when we try to do business in other countries, we want them to agree with us on everything. And where's the line? I have no idea. You know, I'm glad that I don't have to make these decisions. But I would tell you that we've taken it too far in the wrong direction. You know, we've taken it too far in the direction of saying, if you don't share all of our sensibilities and beliefs, we're not going to do business with you. And that's not how you make friends. You also said they look at Africa like a monolith, and that's a problem too. There are massive differences between African countries. There are massive differences between certainly sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. And then, you know, all of these countries have their own political issues. I said it's analogous to states in the United States in that you have states in the United States that are 
wildly different politically, wildly different ethnically, and wildly different culturally. And if you want to do business in Texas, in the United States, you have to take a different approach than if you want to do business in Massachusetts, you know? And if you base where you do business mm-hmm. on who agrees with you on social issues, you're going to end up doing business with nobody. Yeah, I cannot agree with that more. I think a lot of people are, they understand that. I think people on the ground understand that. There, there is this, sometimes there's a disconnect with the people who have their f- feet firmly on the ground in these societies and corporate teams sitting elsewhere in an air-conditioned office. And it's very difficult sometimes explaining these things to them. But for us, as a company, as an organization, our goal is to give insight as clear as we can without any political opinions or, or social opinions. We give you what the facts are, where we think it's going to go. And if that doesn't align with your business goals, your humanitarian goals, and often we know what they are, we would also advise you on that. But our job is to give insight, the decisions and decision support. Decisions at the end of the day are the clients. We cannot do that for them. Um, And it is very difficult. And one of the reasons, the main reason why I called my company Great Dynamics is because that's where the real world is. It's a grayscale, you know, so it's not black and white. So yeah, that's that's my uh, a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. I wanted to ask you, what advice would you give the younger generation from your perspective on in this world of misinformation, disinformation, and topics as energy poverty, but in general, some advice that they can implement in their education, their careers, or you know, it doesn't have to be young people. Let's not discriminate everybody. I would say you need to question where your information is coming from. Question who's making money by putting information into the bloodstream. That's for sure. And like I mentioned earlier, in the U.S., it's extremely easy to uh, run misinformation campaigns. The other thing that I will point out to people, and this is one of my favorite sayings, is that myths do not contradict facts. Myths complement facts. And what that means is if I just lied, and I was quite obviously lying to you, you wouldn't believe me, most likely, you know. If there's an underlying truth to the lie, or I'm using it to either exaggerate or catastrophize the situation through causing alarm or hitting you on an emotional level, that's going to be a very effective information operation. So question everything. Always ask the question, who's making money? And then just do a lot of research. And research is a difficult thing because with all the information we have at our fingertips, You also have a lot more bad information, you know? Yeah. What I would ask people to do is if they're elected officials in the United States anyways, don't let them get off the hook with platitudes and talking points like climate action now or drill baby drill or net zero by 2035. Ask them very specific questions. And the very specific question I ask people is, I say, what type of energy generation would you be willing to site within 10 miles of your home? And ask them to be specific. Because everybody has a plan until you try to build something in their own backyard. 
the biggest opponents to clean energy development mm-hmm. in the United States are the people who ostensibly like clean energy development the most. Mm. You've got a lot of wealthy progressives who talk about climate change, who go to climate change conferences, you know, who have yard signs that say climate mm. action. And then you try to build a wind farm or a solar array near their house, and they're going to have a problem with it. So force your leaders to be specific. It's probably the most pressing issue of our lifetime. And we keep kicking the can down the road, and eventually we're going to pay for it unless we take corrective action. Yeah, it's a great uh, great points you made there. And to just close off the podcast in on a less dark tone with some lightheartedness, any cultural uh, recommendations you can give? What are you watching? What are you listening to? Anything that you can recommend? Yeah, for people who like your podcast, I would recommend they check out a podcast called Everyday Espionage with Andrew Bustamante. They're very short episodes, 20, 30 minutes. He offers actionable advice on how to improve different facets of your life from the perspective of a CIA agent. One of the things that he mentions that really struck home with me is whether you're talking about business development, sales, or you're talking about clandestine operations overseas, is he says you need to line up an advocate. You know, you need to line up people who will say, yeah, I know that guy. He's a good guy. And that was interesting to me because the reason I learned about Andrew Bustamante in the first place is he was on another podcast that I listened to. So I heard him interview on another podcast. So I said, Hey, I'm going to check out his podcast. And then I got really into that. As far as, um, books go, you know, one of the books that I've read recently is called the end of the world is just the beginning by Peter Zihan. And I believe I was first introduced to that guy on, again, another podcast. And the book envisions a future absent American global hegemony and what that would look like. And um, it's a very interesting read. I would recommend it to anybody, especially people who, who find your content interesting. And then as far as lighthearted culture goes, there's a phenomenal show that I just finished watching called SAS Rogue Heroes. And it's about the beginnings of the Special Air Service of England during World War II. And it's awesome. People don't know this, but I ask these questions mainly for myself. So I have so much free time. No, but uh, yeah, I've gotten some great, great recommendations. Some serious ones, some lighthearted ones. I think one of the the lighthearted ones was the episode with uh, with Jason. I think it's the very first episode I've done, and he mentioned the old man. Have you seen that show? The old man, uh, I have not. No. Yeah, it's fantastic. If you if you like espionage and like thrillers, it's it's really really good. it's with Jeff Bridges. Okay. Um, and yeah, it's a fantastic show. I think that one of like when it comes to like entertainment stuff. I think that was probably one of the best recommendations. And the other one that I think people kept bringing up on the podcast and I decided to watch it was the the Star Wars show. Yeah. If you like espionage and again, intelligence, counterintelligence, 
That's so well written, that show. It's so realistic. Even though it's a science fiction show, it's really, really good. Drew, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You making the time. I think this was a little bit of a different podcast that we normally do, but that doesn't mean it's not as important. I think it's very important. After we spoke the first time, I, I was like, we need to talk about this. These topics, they influence a lot of the, the research that we do and the actors that we work with or sometimes even against. So I think in that regard, it was really good to, to have this conversation and, and I really appreciate it. I know it's, it's very early for you right now and for everybody else, if you made it this far. I know a lot of people because I see the numbers. So I know how many people are listening to this podcast. Guys, if you appreciate this podcast, then rate us and, and give us feedback because I don't really get it that much. I would really appreciate that. that if we deserve five stars, give us five. If we deserve one, then give us one. But I would appreciate at least uh, people uh, engaging with us. If you're used to getting five stars and this time you get one, then you know it wasn't you. <laughs> it was, it was... No, no, no. No, no, no. No, I, I, we haven't gotten a bad rating yet, so, but we haven't gotten many either. So I also have to be realistic about that. But people uh, that I haven't spoken with for a long time that have nothing to do with this industry or like work-wise, people from high school that message me and say, hey, I love the podcast. It's, it's surprising to hear. So I, I, I love as much feedback as we can get. I believe the next week's episode is going to be a thematic one i believe i'm not 100 sure we're trying to get a panel together to talk about an interesting topic but i'll announce that closer to the time and again drew really appreciate you coming on and uh, having a very interesting conversation thank you for the opportunity again thank you guys we we had some announcements this week and we will continue with them and we announced our new intelligence school that we're doing so uh, for anybody who wants to engage with that go to the website or read the newsletter and socials which is coming today thank you guys and uh, speak to you the next time <laughs>